African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, we are on DSTV Channel 802. You're with me, Benjamin Moshatama, on African Dialogue. And uh, thank you for also joining us for those who are listening to us on shortwave on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. And uh, we're also online on our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. You can listen to us live there through our streaming there. We're talking about international security trends. Well, the, we know last week the big um, establishment or the developments that took place was the United States and the United Kingdom recently implementing new security measures by banning electronic devices from passenger cabins of flights coming from North Africa and the Middle East. These measures come after African attendees were also denied visas in the United States as they tried to attend the annual African Trade Summit in California. These international security measures come as efforts to combat terrorism and insecurity. However, recently the Westminster attack in the United Kingdom was another unfortunate example that terrorism can come from within rather than outside a country. Well, to look at these particular trends, we're joined on the line by Jasmine Opperman, who is the Africa Director for Terrorism Research and Analysis Consortium, and also we have Ryan Cummings, who is the Director of Signal Risk. Let me start the conversation with you, Ryan, in terms of looking at the trends that are actually taking place currently. What are your expert opinions about these new international security measures? Well, I think it just uh, conforms to the prevailing narrative and terrorism is being exported uh, to several countries, specifically those in the West, um, the United States, obviously part of Europe. Um, and, and it is just, just speaks to, to what governments have kind of reinforced this, this narrative that, you know, the terrorism um, threats facing these countries, facing their citizens, and also facing the, the interests that they host mm. are coming, uh, you know, from across the borders and kind of negating the fact that uh, there is a need countries, a grassroots terrorism that is born and conceived within their own borders. And then, you know, while um, transnational terrorism obviously could play a facilitating role in providing these actors with the forms of patronage and, you know, the operational and logistical capacity to carry out this tax, it's not necessarily contingent, um, you know, that these threats are going to come across their borders their seaports or through the airports, but basically within their very own communities, mm. as we recently saw in, uh, in an attack at Westminster and Bridge and also, you know, outside the uh, National Assembly. Let me move to you, Jasmine. Your thoughts around these trends, Ryan highlighting that the real threat in what's happening right now is that terrorism can come through grassroots level within uh, the borders of a country instead of being an external threat. Your thoughts of some of these uh, international security measures that we're starting to see, it seems like also there's specific countries that are being targeted. Um, good morning, and, and good morning to Ryan as well. Uh, yes, I think there are two realities at play here that I cannot ignore. One, homegrown presence. 
Uh, if one looks at since uh, Ramadan uh, June last year to now where we sit, we have seen um, an increase in foreign attacks, not in Europe and the USA specifically, and that 76% of these attacks were actually executed by people on domestic soil. But this can, in most cases, be traced back to pipelines that has been enacted and has been in place for a number of years. So to implement these immigration or these security measures will have little impact on those already present. Secondly, if one looks at the laws or the security measures being announced, they are out of touch with the reality and the trends in international terrorism, uh, where electronic devices being used and being taken on board remains exception. We've had the Mogadishu attack that uh, thankfully failed, but terrorists or extremists are not anymore in a mindset of trying to get on board with very specific equipment uh, that will directly an associated to an attack. Mm. So we see laws being announced, security measures being announced that simply not in touch with the overall trend of guided, directed or inspired attacks by extremist groups. Well, it's also interesting to see that these restrictive bans in the UK and in the US specific, specifically target specific countries. And uh, that's been something that has been concerning and some have called it that it could actually encourage the perspective that it's some form of Islamophobia. And coming back to you, Ryan, countries such as Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia and Saudi Arabia, which are North Africa and Middle Eastern countries, have been the target. I'm sure this gives a bad impression indeed. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I'm not going to speak too much about Trump's uh, visa bans because both of them were since nullified by, um, you know, the country's uh, judiciary. But maybe speaking more to the electronic bans that we saw uh, implemented by both the U.S. and the U.K. Um, Now, there's still quite a lot of confusion in terms of why um, this initial ban was implemented. You know, the U.S. State Department um, of Homeland Security and also the U.K. uh, Foreign Commonwealth Office, you know, the judiciary is possible for the imposition of these uh, restrictions are quite vague in terms of, of why they've been introduced and specifically which countries um, and why the countries are affected. I think 10 airports in total, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the key issue, however, comes down to the fact that the raid in um, Yemen um, earlier in January, it was one of the first um, special force operations to be um, kind of uh, orchestrated by the Trump administration. Um, and it was claimed mm-hmm. that the US forces had recovered some documentation during those raids. Um, this documentation included claims that um, al-Qaeda was in the process or had already uh, created uh, improvised explosive devices that one was able to kind of um, conceal. Um, with a device no bigger than a laptop um, or an iPad, um, basically not, not not enough to be put in a mobile phone, but definitely on bigger um, devices, and that these could actually be used uh, with aircraft. They needed to be manually triggered, obviously, if you're flying a few 10,000 feet in the air, you won't have access form of cell phone reception or network to kind of remotely um, activate an explosive device, but if they annually carried on carry-on luggage, you know that the assailant could do so, and, you know, due to the detonation that has 
altitude you would be able to down a commercial aircraft um, as as Jasmine had had mentioned as well really this um, in, on a flight uh, from Mogadishu to Djibouti, a Dalo Airlines flight, where an individual was able to uh, detonate a laptop bomb or a bomb that was hidden inside a laptop, um, you know, mid-air. Fortunately, it wasn't at a high enough altitude to bring down the entire aircraft, and he accounted, uh, the bomber accounted for the only casualty. Um, again, a little bit different from the rest of the bands, because when uh, there was kind of the uh, autopsy done in terms of the um, or the person watching, I should say, from, from the attack in Mogadishu was actually found out that some of the airline staff at the Aden Ade International Airport in Mogadishu were complicit and actually had smuggled in the laptop with the device on board, and this obviously facilitated the attack. Um, I think the civil aviation authorities from a number of Middle Eastern countries are saying, well, you know, our security procedures are much stricter, they're much tighter, and therefore, you know, the incident that we saw in Somalia is definitely not going to happen. But then again, you know, we're looking at a country such as Egypt where there's two um, incidents so far. You know, we saw the Metro jet uh, aircraft on route from St. Petersburg uh, to, um, oh, sorry, from Cairo, uh, mm-hmm. Sharm el-Sheikh mm-hmm. to St. Petersburg in October mm-hmm. 2015. That was brought down allegedly by the Islamic State use, using a, uh, an IUD. And then there's also speculation of the Egypt air flight from mm-hmm. Paris mm-hmm. Um, to Cairo, which may also have had an onboard detonation. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to hear our other guests on this particular issue. That was the voice of Ryan Cummings, director of Signal Risk, giving us that backdrop of the reasoning behind the ban of electric devices, uh, laptops specifically, and tablets in inbound flights from six countries. Uh, uh, That is also a move that is not just by the United Kingdom, but also by the United States. Also on the line, we've got Jasmine Opperman, who's the Africa director of Terrorism Research and an Analysis Consortium. After the break, we'll also have the Executive Director of the Afro-Middle East Center, Naeem Jean, who will be also uh, giving us his views, especially about the target of uh, the um, Middle East countries. Why was that the case? And what, what does that do in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of terrorism, and also inciting uh, these kind of radical views that, that come from these terrorist groups? The time right now is 16 minutes past 11 o'clock central african time let's take a quick break we'll be back just a reminder spotlight africa a feature program that showcases and highlights african issues from an african perspective can be heard every wednesday at 1000 hours UCT with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours Thursday at 300 hours and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective Spotlight Africa
Well, this is uh, African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshatama. Uh, thank you for joining us here on our program, where from Monday to Thursday, we speak to experts on uh, the big subjects on uh, the African continent. And today, we're looking at international security measures and looking at the current trends that are underway. We're looking at this because there was a big ban for North African countries and the Middle East not to use electronic devices in passenger cabins. And also, there was this came after another story that came out where uh, there were actually Africans were supposed to attend an African summit in California and uh, that uh, Africa trade summit did not actually have African uh, uh, delegates because they were denied visas due to security measures in the country and I want to bring that back to you Jasmine before I move on to Naeem that idea of actually focusing on specific countries and why is that the particular case especially looking at the target being north africa and middle and the middle east that they are valid concerns related to pipelines and supply routes that is coming from north africa yes we cannot say that reality and we have seen that um, running into for example france uh, german we have seen that running into the uk and also to the u.s but if one then wants to start identifying and be very specific on, on people that has now been denied access to such a conference on a generalized statement of the threat of extremism, I think it's just an indication of governments grasping at straws and trying to justify their own security measures at all costs. And um, so one has to be careful because what we are mm, doing mm. by denying access to such conferences is to implicate the individuals. And, and on what grounds and on what merit and on what dating process has this actually done, been being done and being informed? Um, and that is where the problem lies. Uh, with mm. such heightened security measures, there always has to be some rational thought and some rational analysis that informs denying access people. And I think this is the, the fundamental problem we are seeing in Europe, what we are seeing in the U.S., is that they are implementing all these laws and all security measures or trying to, and based on that, make a statement that is in name of counter-terrorism, where there is simply no correlation existing. Mm-hmm. Um, I take you back to the whole risk to, to, to airplanes and, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. examples mm-hmm. mentioned by Ryan. Those are You know, uh, try to explain that, to explain that earlier on, um, in terms of that justification, whether it makes sense. Because in terms of this, and, you know, just ignoring completely the other ban from the U.S., but in terms of this, um, it's not banning passengers from particular countries, uh, or not, not uh, rather, not banning electronics uh, mm-hmm. of passengers from certain countries or uh, from particular nationalities, etc. It's... Um, it's direct flights from these countries and particular airlines that, that are being targeted. So is the issue really, or you know, is, is one suggesting that, uh, that you fly on, on the Stanza that the security is, is better or mm, what, mm. whatever the case might be? Um, but the, the, the countries um, you know, go beyond the previous uh, ban of, uh, of people coming from countries. So this, this list now is 10 countries, uh, all of which are in... Um, 
in, in, in the Middle East and, and North Africa, as mm-hmm. you pointed out. But uh, they also include some of the cheapest airlines um, in the world. Um, I mean, you, you and I both, I'm sure, know of many people who would fly to London, for example, mm-hmm. uh, on Emirates mm-hmm. or, or on, on Qatar. Um, and so that, that brings into the picture another question mm-hmm. about whether this is actually there for the sake of security and uh, counterterrorism, and Justin spoke to that issue, um, or whether there's also an economic uh, motivation here mm-hmm. um, in terms of reducing the attractiveness of particular cheap airlines. Mm, very interesting views there. I want to come to you, Ryan, especially looking at the nature of uh, this particular ban, because as was highlighted by Naeem, that it's not a ban on devices on flights themselves, but it's kind of a technical ban because you're seeing that uh, they're not allowing uh, the uh, the laptops and tablets in in the inbound flights, but they are allowing them to be part of, of the luggages. So it's contradictory because you know the, the the I was speaking about this earlier on that you still have the the laptop in the plane itself. So is that a real security measure or is it a, a, a scare tactic of some sorts, Ryan? Yeah, well, I think it's just again speaking to the technical nature, and again on this dossier that was uh, seemingly um, captured in in your men. The issue why these devices are allowed still aboard aircraft, and I speak again from a purely security perspective. I think that you made uh, some fantastic points regarding you know the, the economic economic dynamic um, of the band, and mm-hmm. you know, we always need to kind of uh, take all of these things into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the issue from a security perspective is that when um, an item um, such as a laptop or, or anything else is put in luggage that is in the cargo hold of an aircraft, even if it has an explosive device um, which has a detonator, the ability for a you know potential assailant to detonate it mid-air would be rendered impossible. This is because of you know the uh, obviously the the flight altitude that one is at, which severs any form of mobile communications, any form of telecommunications, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the air, which would make an individual access the device remotely and be able to detonate it, you know, from within the cabin. Um, the, the the claim was that that this would be impossible to do. But if that item was in carry on uh, carry on luggage, you know, a potential terrorist was able to bypass security, smuggle a mm-hmm. device on board that has a remote um, ID that's located within a battery holder wherever mm. we're able to manually detonate the device. So it, it, it seemingly the argument is, is that you know, even if a viable IED is placed on a device and that device is in a cargo hold, it would be rendered ineffective in terms of a mid-air detonation due to the lack of you know, um, mobile and telecommunication access mm. aboard an aircraft um, during its flight. Mm. Jasmine, your thoughts on, on that technicality, it, it, it seems for me, as much as that has been said, um, it seems to me like there is another bigger issue here in terms of uh, with all these technological advances that we have, especially when uh, you're actually getting into an airport and uh, you're actually lodging your luggage in, there has to be some form of uh, more innovative ways for us to actually actually have a way of doing this much better and smarter. Is this the best innovation that we've ever seen? I don't think so. 
It is going, always going to be extremely problematic. Mm. And I think, again, with these security measures, just again, the question arises, actually, how far can go? Because you need state-of-the-art um, equipment to identify if actually such an attack was being planned and um, with the intent to be actually executed in mid-air. But I want to come back to the point. Any counter-terror opera- or, or counter-terrorism strategy must be informed by what is in the world around you, where you are and where you are. If we want to look at telegram accounts of the Islamic State of Al-Qaeda, there is a clear message being sent to homegrown self and homegrown individuals to execute attacks with whatever means available. The, the trend in international terrorism, because of the heightened security measures, has shifted drastically. Secondly, both Al-Qaeda and the state, current methods and current objectives has also and also demands a re-look at the traditional definition of terrorism. For them, it is not anymore about the creation of fear like it would have done by a mid-air explosion. So what we are seeing is these groups announcing their continued, their sustained presence. And therefore, there Mm. is no more secondary audience at play. There is only the audience, and that being the government, and its citizens, we are here, we are ready to attack, we are present amongst your civilians. And because of these fundamental shifts, you need to find what is the most effective counter-terrorism strategy to put on table. Yes, your airports will always remain vulnerable. The possibility of airlines will be used, but there are many possibilities that terrorists can use. The question is, what is the probability of this being planned and actually executed now compared to a homegrown attack, inspired, guided, or enabled? Then the demand surely for these governments should be on the homegrown nature of terrorism that they are facing. And it is as if we are seeing governments now trying to think point the problem as an outside problem, negating the reality of what is happening with terrorism, what they are focusing on, and how they are planning to execute their attacks. Naeem, let me bring you in. Your thoughts, um, uh, Jasmine, saying that the methods are changing dramatically. You're seeing uh, the whole terrorism uh, dynamic becoming of a homegrown nature. Your thoughts? Well, I I mean, I think that Jasmine is correct in that. Uh, And and I think that uh, in general, uh, first let me say in, in general, that the amount of uh, resources that are put into um, counterterrorism um, far outweighs the danger that is actually posed uh, in these various countries. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about um, I'm not talking about countries like Iraq or, or in Syria, for for example, but I'm talking about countries like in Europe and uh, and, and and North America. Mm-hmm. Um, if we consider the number of people that are killed uh, and and the damage that is done through terrorist actions compared to, um, to other forms of, of damage and, and, and killing, etc. When we add to that this kind of thing now with these flights, I mean, J- Jasmine is correct. How much of a threat is posed by these kinds of things compared to the amount of resources that is put now into, um, into policing um, these electronic bans, etc.? 
and it, it doesn't make sense even from uh, even discounting my first point um, it doesn't make sense in terms of just a kind of um, uh, uh, cost analysis um, of, uh, of of the amount of resources put into policing this so really there isn't uh, um, there isn't much sense in, in in this kind of a ban there are so many problems with it so many holes in it um, the point that Ryan made and, and, and Ryan is, is correct about the technical aspects but um, you know a, a ban on electronics larger than a cell phone um, your, your cell phone these days uh, can be as powerful and can do similar kinds of things that uh, that your laptop might be able to do if you can uh, um, if you can trigger a bomb from your laptop it's really quite possible to be able to do so from your cell phone. Does that really make sense uh, in terms of that? Should they be, if they want to go in this direction, just ban all electronics? Um, and, and how smart would that be? Um, so I think that, that I'm, I'm not sure whether this was well thought through. Um, um, it sounds like it wasn't in terms of uh, all of these aspects. But as I said earlier on, it sounds like there might also be um, other agendas uh, apart from security. Um, that is driving this uh, this ban. Well, uh, those are the views that are coming from our guests there. It's 11.33 Central African time. And when we come back, we'll touch on what Naeem is highlighting there in the latter points there as he was speaking. Speaking about it seems like the international uh, community does not really know how to counter the uh, terrorist attack and also to deal with this uh, domestic uh, nature of uh, terrorism currently. Give us your thoughts. Remember, you can engage with us via SMS on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero email us at info at channelafrica.org. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and get our final views from our guests. Something is changing at Channel Africa. Could it be news? Could it be your favorite presenter? Could it be? That's for you, our listener, to find out. From the 1st of April 2017, something will be changing or happening on your radio station. Be the first one to find out by staying tuned in. Don't miss it. Remember to check our website and all social media platforms such as Twitter at Channel Africa One, our Facebook page and Instagram and YouTube. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. While it seems like uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in the world, uh, we talk now when we talk about Brexit, when we talk about Donald Trump, when we talk about even these issues of how do we implement effective security measures in terms of our various countries. Globalization is bringing a whole lot of challenges indeed. Ryan, let me come uh, to you. We know that also uh, Britain is one of those uh, countries that are struggling with this uh, indeed. I know that 
that uh, uh, the Prime Minister um, uh, Theresa May has been also been criticised even for her counter-terrorism policies that she is starting to introduce. Uh, uh, Donald Trump has been stating that uh, he has uh, a big determination to fight against ISIL with the his plans are still uncertain right now how he's going to do that and fulfill his election promise is still uncertain right now but there seems a lot of speculation and not real action on the ground especially when it comes to that political will it's all over the place yeah most definitely i think when we look at any of the um, so-called uh uh, Western responses to to either domestic, um, you know, terrorism or terrorism borders. I think there's a massive disconnect um, with with what their foreign policy standing is. You know, these instances. I mean, there's one thing trying to say, well, you know, we're going to do the utmost to protect our borders. You know, our countrymen. Um, you know, our interests, both commercial and diplomatic, within our own borders. You know, and we implementing policy to do that and understand, you know, you're sending, um, you know, deploying airstrikes um, across a number of big countries, um, many of which are, are targeting um, civilian um, communities. And, you know, that, that is the fundamental problem that we see with, with the uh, strategy to, towards terrorism in many of these instances is that um, governments are keen on treating the so-called symptoms of terrorism, the actual attacks, um, you know, the manifestations um, of a specific ideology, um, but they are doing absolutely nothing to actually remedy its, its causes. And that is primarily um, that we're seeing um, almost reckless foreign intervention within many of these theaters that are only complicating um, the situation on the ground. I mean, Syria is a perfect example. Obviously, the Islamic State threat emanates from this um, part of the world in the Levant, and we can even look at North Africa with the Islamic State in Libya that has become kind of or was the preeminent threat within that uh, embattled country. But in both Libya and Syria, We've seen disastrous foreign intervention um, within these countries. We've seen specific groups, non-state groups, um, with varying ideologies um, being used as proxies by Western governments to fight wars within their own territory. And um, at the end of the day, um, it's loss of life um, within these specific contexts that has the rubber stamp of uh, Western governments and Western military approaches and most importantly Western foreign policy um, that is uh, kind of causing punitive measures being taken against these countries um, within their own borders. So I think that if there is any form of solution that needs to be undertaken um, to fight terrorism um, both domestically but also abroad, that first and foremost there needs to be a revision of foreign policy measures adopted by several of these Western governments and you know, stop using foreign um, conflict theaters as a means of fighting proxy wars you know, with um, other administrations who you are you know, rivaling for, for hegemonic preeminence uh, you know, in the global order. Mm. Jasmine, your thoughts there. We also saw that conflict between Donald Trump and Angela Merkel when she was uh, in uh, uh, the United States there. And I think it was the issue of that migration conversation that, you know, Angela has been leading on there. And it seems like even the idea of the fact that we live in a a world where migration is becoming the norm, uh, it seems like uh, even that issue is uh, being uh, misunderstood understood in in linking it with uh, terrorism 
Yes, and I want to concur with, uh, with what Ryan has just said, and it's so hard. Um, and what we are seeing from these governments, and uh, there are very concerning trends. One, it is this obsession and belief that the moment they have destroyed the Islamic State, um, however we're going to do it, but we need to contextualize the Islamic State and also a group like Al-Qaeda. They do represent an extremist ideology, an idea. So even if, let's say even if, and it's a big if, they do succeed in taking out these groups, that does not mean that they have counted the idea. And now you have to go back to the root causes. The manner and the fundamental issues relate to their domestic policies where there is clearly a feeling of disenfranchisement, where there's a clearly a feeling of second-class citizenship, and this leads to certain individuals supporting extremist ideas. We can just look now at the incident from Rome to uh, support for extremist ideology. So these they come to Europe, as an escape to seek a better life, to seek work, not in support of extremism. How are they going to be accommodated? And by building walls, trying to ring fence the problem as an outside problem is quite, to put it blatantly, naive and ill-conceived. And, and they really need to revisit how the situation is being dealt on home soil. Let me get your final sentiments, Naeem. Well, I, I must say I agree with uh, with what Jasmine is saying, um, and and I think that uh, the the manner in which um, this whole terrorism issue has been addressed, particularly by Western governments, um, has is very serious, very seriously problematic, as she has pointed out. Um, on the on the electronics ban itself, um, I think this and and now in in the era of Trump, I think that we need to ask questions also quite differently. Um, than, than we did previously. And so, you know, the point I made about, um, you know, U.S. airlines have been lobbying uh, the Trump administration, for example, to intervene with these particularly Persian Gulf uh, airlines, which, which have been very cheap and, uh, um, and which, quite frankly, receive quite huge subsidies in order to be able to operate at, at cheap rates. And, and whether these things, whether the whole uh, um, so-called war on terror in fact, has other objectives than uh, than simply security and uh, and fighting extremism. Um, and then, as Jasmine said, you know, the, the root cause, uh, dealing with the root causes, is not something that any of these governments is is seriously doing. Whether it's foreign policy or, as she pointed out, uh, domestic policy and the alienation of people um, in their own countries. So, the foreign policy, of course, we we understand the role, of, for example, of the U.S., the U.K. in in Iraq, in Syria, in uh, the Palestinian issue, etc., but also uh, domestic policies. You look at France, you look at the U.K. Um, and unless it, and also, I mean, if, if you look at a country like Nigeria, which is not, not a Western country, on the mm-hmm. African continent, mm-hmm. and why is it that we have Boko Haram, and before Boko Haram, you know, uh, another version of Boko Haram, and before that, another one, mm-hmm. uh, each of them being destroyed and, and giving rise to a new one. Mm-hmm. It's because the root causes of marginalization and disadvantage um, are not considered, are, are not dealt with, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the feeling is that you can deal with these things uh, simply at a military or security level, mm-hmm. and that's not correct.
Well, thank you all for giving us your views. Very multifaceted views coming there. But really, thank you for that comprehensive analysis. Thank you to uh, Naeem Jean, who was our final speaker there, Executive Director of the Afro Middle East Center. Thank you as well to Jasmine Opperman, who is the Africa Director for Terrorism Research and Analysis Consortium. Thank you as well to the Director of Signal Risk, Ryan Cummings. Uh, Thank you all for giving us your thoughts. Well, that's how we wrap up our show today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, remember, we're on uh, Facebook Channel Africa page and also we're on uh, Twitter at Channel Africa 1. It's the number one there at the end, the numeric one at Channel Africa 1 or uh, for our show at African Dialogue. Well, we'll be back with uh, more uh, discussions uh, tomorrow, bringing you experts really to expound and really look at things in context of some of the big issues that are taking place on the continent. Until then, oh, uh, God bless. But we're going to leave you with uh, music from Stimela, South African Afro rock band. This one is titled Where Did We Go Wrong? It's a beautiful classic.